0: This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. My special guest today is Darla Romfo, president and COO of the Children's Scholarship Fund, an organization founded in 1998 by philanthropists Ted Forsman and John Walton. The CSF, as it's called, provides scholarships to low-income families so that they can have a say in where they send their children to school.
1: Parents are the first educators of their children. That was one of the things that Ted always drove home to me. And if you don't honor that and respect it and empower them, you're going to have the results we have now. Parents have been disempowered for so long. It's going to take a while to get back to a place where the people who are closest to the problem are actually given the power to help solve the problem.
0: My conversation with Darla in a moment, but now what's ahead? Well, the monster news, of course, is the coronavirus. Finally, though, we're finally getting diagnostic tests. This will give us crucial information about how many people may be infected and, very importantly, where those infections are. Amazingly, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, really botched this situation. They're supposed to be on the cutting edge of knowing what's coming our way. So the result is we're two months late in getting this crucial information. The economy, of course, will continue to be hard hit. Everyone is cancelling meetings. No one wants to see each other. So obviously, airlines, cruise lines, the energy industry is being impacted for other reasons, as well as the coronavirus hit on the economies, restaurants, all forms of entertainment. So what does this all mean? Short term, the economy is going to come to a screeching semi-halt. What will government do to help the situation? One sensible proposal is reducing the payroll tax for a year or two. This is not unprecedented. We did it in 2011 and 2012 under a Democrat president and a Republican Congress. It's been done before. The president did wisely propose that the Small Business Administration get an infusion of cash to lend to small businesses that suffer temporary cash flow problems. But there are other parts of the economy that are going to need some help as well. But what the government ends up doing, will it put in place... Measures, regulations that will hurt the recovery, that remains to be seen. And unfortunately, politics still reigns. Talking about politics, on Tuesday, we have another set of primaries four states, but three of them big states Florida, Illinois, Ohio, and Arizona. Florida is the biggie, but those other two states also have a big swatch of delegates. This will be Bernie Sanders' last stand. If he doesn't do well in one of these states, he's going to be under severe pressure to withdraw. However, I don't expect him to withdraw. He knows this is his last ride. and He's going to ride it for all that it's worth and hope that the putative front runner Joe Biden, falters, which Joe Biden is quite capable of doing. He's done it before, made major gaffes on the campaign trail. So stay tuned for that. On the economic front, a lot of information coming this week. Especially on Tuesday. Not only are we going to have those elections in those four states, we're also going to get a report on retail sales. They start to falter in February. Going to get numbers on industrial production. A thing called jolts. What it does is talk about the number of vacancies in the economy. A vacancies starting to shrink. Up to now, we've had more job offerings, more job vacancies, than we have people who are unemployed. Then we get the NAHB market index coming out. That index gauges the sentiment of home builders. Are they turning pessimistic? On Wednesday, more housing news. We get the report on housing starts. How are they weathering the storm? On Thursday, initial jobless claims. Is that starting to pick up again? And finally, on Friday, another report existing home sales, not new ones, but existing home sales. How are they faring? So, huge week coming. And now, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Darla Romfo. My special guest today is Darla Romfo. She's President and Chief Operating Officer of the Children's Scholarship Fund. The fund is a nonprofit organization that provides scholarships to help low income children in grades K through 8 to go to private schools, whether faith based, Catholic, Jewish, Islamic, or secular. Darla, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. I've been a fan of yours for a long time, so I'm really honored and thrilled to be
0: here. And vice versa. The fund was launched in the late 1990s by private equity investor Ted Forsman and by John Walton, a venture capitalist and former Green Beret who was decorated for bravery in the Vietnam War. Both men were horrified by the fact that so many public schools were not providing a decent education for inner-city kids and they decided to take direct action by offering inner-city parents direct alternatives for failing inner-city schools by helping them go to private schools. As Ted Forstman said when the first scholarships were awarded, quote, some insist that if we would just keep doing more of what we have been doing, spend more money, hire more teachers, reduce class sizes, we will get different results. I don't believe that anymore. Forstman and Walton contributed tens of millions of dollars and raised tens of millions more to launch the fund. Since 1999, the fund has helped some 180,000 children and invested some $850 million in scholarships for these kids. The fund is the only national K-8 scholarship organization helping low-income children and their families. So Darla, you have been running this almost since its inception. First, give us your unusual background. You weren't an educator.
1: No, actually, I'm a lawyer and a CPA. Um, grew up on a farm in North Dakota, came out to the East Coast to go to law school, uh, practiced tax law for a while, and then actually was working on Capitol Hill for a Democratic senator and was working on Medicare and Social Security and Policy issues in general and was really – been there about six years and – Including
0: uh, retirement policies. Inti-
1: including retirement policies. We could have fixed those things back when we had a
0: budget surplus. Oh, well, When I was running for president then, I had some ideas on that. You did. But, uh, here you we did. are. <laughs>
1: here we are with no budget surplus and no solutions still on the horizon. But um, in the process of that, I actually was – you start thinking about the things that would – where where do all these problems really start? And when you go back further and further, you realize it was something John Walton always said, too, that they had realized in their family that if you could address education, you could address a lot of other problems. And about that time, I happened to meet Teddy Forsman, who came in. Um, to meet with John Bro, who was on his advisory committee for John
0: Bro was a senator from Louisiana. Yes, a sensible Democrat. They had them in those days.
1: He was a sensible Democrat, um, part of the centrist coalition that had about thirty senators at that time, who from both sides of the aisle who met to find solutions to real problems, real solutions to real problems. So yes.
0: So uh, they uh, you got hired, mm-hmm. but first uh, before going in the fund itself. Uh, Give us the deplorable state of many of our schools today. I was in Kentucky the other day and learned that at least 10,000 kids in the fourth grade can't read. And we see this all over in inner cities and in various areas of America. So go through that, uh, the National Report card and all of that about the uh, state of American education, which is shocking because, as you know and pointed out, since 1980, we've spent over a trillion dollars trying to fix the schools, and what do we have to show for it? So first go through where we're at today.
1: Well, where we're at today is that on nationally normed tests that that are referenced to what is happening internationally, we are still ranking. We're actually dropping our rankings like to 27th and 33 um, in math and English. And if you don't know how to read by the time you're in fourth grade, it's a pretty dismal outcome for the for the higher grades. So that's one of the reasons why we address K through 8 education because if you're trying to help kids get into high school and college if they haven't learned to read by 4th grade it's it's not a good thing, and we're putting we're putting less time on task in terms of education. Um, we've dumbed down our curriculum. I have a friend who actually works for a curriculum company, and she just told me this astonishing thing: that oh, what I used to work for, what we used to do with the standards, what we used to do for fourth grade are now sixth or seventh grade. So we're dumbing down teaching. The one thing American students have a, a lot of is self confidence, <laughs> but they don't actually have a lot of knowledge. This education might work well for kids that are getting a lot of support from home, but a lot of our kids, more and more, it's a problem that they're not coming from intact families. They're not getting a lot of support from home, and you you add that on top of a dumbed-down education system, and you've got this position we're in today, which is really no improvement since the days that you're talking about.
0: Well, the Education Department uh, has this, as you pointed out, National Assessment for Educational Progress, and... One fourth of eight graders, one fourth, are functionally illiterate, and for low income kids, half eighth grade functionally illiterate. You mentioned the international comparisons, terrible. Now why didn't the gap shrink between nineteen eighty when the eighty one when the problem was first identified, that our schools were failing a lot of kids unnecessarily? Here we are, almost 40 years later, and we're still got the problems, even though in a minute we'll go over some progress in certain states, but nationally, not much progress.
1: Well, I think it goes back to the quote that you mentioned from TED, which is if you keep doing the same thing over and over again, Form you'll of get.
0: Insanity. <laughs> yeah,
1: you'll just keep keep getting the same results. And there's a there's always this cry that if you pour more money at it, it will solve the problem. And the cry for smaller classrooms, which actually means more teachers, if you have smaller classrooms. And not to say that smaller classrooms you can't have better results, but you still have to have good teachers. And you know, many of the poorest performing schools get teachers from the bottom 10% of classes and a teaching profession isn't attracting always the highest performing people um, you, we need to have better teachers we need we need to have um, better curriculum knowledge based curriculum um, all of these things uh, and and now we also have a situation where more and more kids are coming to school unsettled and not really able to learn as well teachers are dealing with a lot of problems besides just kids who aren't aren't Ready to learn,
0: and so uh, the bottom line is the gap between high and low achieving students still as wide as it today as it was uh, back in the early nineteen eighties. Sadly, that is true.
1: But I think of I think of the um, one of my Jewish friends uses the words tikkum olam, which means repairing the world. And even though we can't make the world a perfect place, we are not allowed not to try. So, there's a lot of, like you said, there are pockets of a lot of good things happening and you can focus on the hope and opportunity that some kids are getting. It's When Teddy Forsman and John Walton started the Children's Scholarship Fund, they were hoping that showing that a 1,250,000 kids who applied for the scholarships for 40,000
0: slots would show that there was... Emphasize that again. They offered 40,000 mm-hmm. scholarships and had over 1,200,000 applicants. That tells you all you need to know.
1: It does. I mean, Ted definitely, and you know you know Ted, and you know that he was a guy who wanted to shake things up and make things happen, and when he went together with John Walton to do this, he really thought that within the four-year span of the 40,000 scholarships, that it was po- there was potentially a chance that they could shake the system up and something different would happen as a result of it, something very big and different. And as he found out that it's you're pushing up against a very strong force of opposition.
0: The empire knows how to Strike back.
1: Correct, um, but you know, I don't want to. I don't want to sabotage teachers here because there's so many good teachers and there's so many people out there trying to do a good thing. But uh, systems are hard to change. Change comes. It's it's going to happen from the 88 percent of low-income African American and Latino families who support school choice, for example. That's a big change over time.
0: Uh, let's uh, get to the. Children's Scholarship Fund itself. We've mentioned uh, since inception you've done 180000 but they're not full scholarships, they're partial scholarships. Walk us through how you operate and why you want to make sure the families put up some of the money.
1: Well, we think of it as a um, hand up, not a handout. out. Um, it's very important from the, the culture of the schools that these kids go to is a culture where parents are asked to be involved um, and it, one of the best ways to get people involved is to have some skin in the game financially. And plus, what we're trying to do is help as many kids as we can. So having the parents partner with us is an important part of it because it stretches the, the dollars a lot further. Our average scholarship in New York City is only about $2,500. The maximum is 3200 The parents pay the rest. They're going to schools that have an average tuition of around 5500
0: So, So the, the fund... How do you pick the parents? Do they apply to you? How, uh, what counseling do you do? How uh, describe how 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 the program actually works?
1: So we keep it very very simple. Um, we a parents a lot of them find out about our program through the schools. We now have over 250 schools around the five boroughs in New York City that know about us and know about the program. And they have a lot of people who come to their schools and say, I would like to come to your school, but I don't think I can do it financially. And they will refer the parents to us. They apply for a scholarship. We ask them to give us information about their family size and their income. Um, Our scholarships are 25 percent, 50 percent, 75 percent, depending on a calculation that's based on the income of the family, the size of the family, and the tuition at the school. We try to give just the right amount of help to make it possible for them to make the decision to go to a private school while still stretching our resources as far as possible. We're completely privately funded.
0: Now, your organization gets uh, very good ratings from uh, agencies that rate uh, charities, and you have donors that cover 100% of your overhead, so anyone contributing knows the money goes directly for scholarships.
1: It does. And, you know, we kind of look at expenses. If if you waste $2,500, it's a child that's not getting a scholarship. So we don't waste anything. We try to keep the budget um, very neat and trim, and we have a good CFO who helps us in that effort. But everybody, everybody in our office is really dedicated to the mission.
0: And... Uh, You've mentioned New York, but of course you operate nationwide. You right. partnership with other groups around the country.
1: We do. So when Ted and John started CSF, they, they said we were going to put up $100 million of our own money and we want to raise another $100 million around the country. They went to different locations around the country and got a, a lot of different localities signed on. The idea was to make them strong, independent, locally thriving, um, not to control everything from CSF in new york and we have very strong partners around the country we still give them small matching grants we actually hands-on run a, a tax credit program in new hampshire but other than that most of them are independent 501c3s with their own governing board we, we bring them together once a year um, to talk about best practices and have put on a day of inspiration and encouragement and practical advice. We have regular calls with them, and they like being part of a network to know know that we're all in this together. That's very encouraging and helpful. They're not
0: alone. They're not alone. Now, you go through K through 8, kids in eighth grade. What do you do about high school? How do you, how do you prevent them from uh, falling over the cliff with some of the high schools around?
1: Well, we keep... We keep track of our alums. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a very good alumni tracking program. And we know that our kids graduate high school on time 94 percent. Versus? Uh, versus 70-some percent for the public schools.
0: Do you have certain high schools where you try to direct them, where you know they're going to get the kind of education they got in K through 8?
1: Well, they're pretty strong programs in most of the, the schools that our kids go to. By 8th grade, they're helping them with guidance and on and. And these kids get a lot of these schools get a lot of scholarship dollars for their kids, because if you're looking for kids that perform well, you want to get kids from these schools. Um, And, you know, a lot of schools are looking for that high performing minority, low income kids. So they have pretty good opportunities. And we know from data that if you're in a private school in eighth grade, your chances of going to high school, completing high school, going to college are so much higher if you're in a private school in eighth grade. And our alumni statistics have proven that out.
0: So you uh, kept track of your uh, 180,000 charges over the years?
1: We keep track of the ones in New York. We're keeping track. Starting in 2012, we're keeping track. Um, so we, we weren't thinking we were going to be around all these years. We were started out as a four-year program. But as it turns out, there's still— And repeat
0: again, you thought it was going to be— they, Ted and John thought it was going to be four years because they thought everyone would say, Aha! Uh-huh. Aha! would be a nationwide reform movement and they wouldn't be needed anymore.
1: You know that's the hope that every kid has access to a quality education without needing the benefit of our scholarship program. Um, that's not the case right now, and as we know, there's no do-over on an education. You we were talking about the numbers earlier about you know kids' performance levels, and if you don't learn to do certain have certain skills by a certain age, it's kind of over for you.
0: Well, what's ahead, listeners? This interview is not over for you. But we are going to take a brief pause to bring you a new segment we're calling Preview of Coming Attractions. We're doing our last episode of our second season. We've been on the air now for a year, but don't worry. We have lots of exciting things in store for you for season three. But even before season three formally begins, one is a special episode celebrating our one-year anniversary of the podcast coming out on Friday, March 27. What's special about it? Well, I'll tell you. The tables get turned on me by someone I thought I could trust.
1: I've stormed the castle.
0: What? You're taking over the show? What is this? You're supposed to be the child. I'm the father.
1: I am Moira Forbes, referred to in our family as daughter number four, one of five daughters. And today, I'm so excited to put my father in the hot seat and turn the tables.
0: That's right. This is a hostile takeover situation in which I get grilled, by my very own flesh and blood, daughter number four, Moira Forbes. We have five daughters, my wife and I, Moira's number four, but she certainly doesn't act like it. In case you didn't know, Moira also happens to be the executive vice president of Forbes Media, the publisher of Forbes Women, and host of her own video series called Success with Moira Forbes. With these impressive credentials under her belt, thankfully she takes after her mother-not-me on the brain front, where it gets me to open up about some of the most personal, emotional moments of my life.
1: Your political aspirations, at least in terms of running for president, were not successful. We never did live in Washington in a White House. Um, Talk about that moment in 96, that you took the stage to end your candidacy.
0: Well, it's uh, similar to uh, giving a eulogy at your own funeral. It's a tough thing to do, but you hope you uh, do it uh, calmly, with dignity, put the best face on it. The Moira Forbes Takeover. It's an intimate portrait of your intrepid podcast host, and you won't want to miss it. Keep an eye or an ear. Out for it on Friday, March 27th. But now, we end this preview of coming attractions to bring you back to the main event. My interview with Darla Romfo. And uh, success stories on, online, you highlight uh, young people who have uh, gone on to college, including Harvard. I hope Harvard learned from them more than they probably learned from Harvard. <laughs> and uh, they've pursued various careers.
1: Oh, yeah. We have a couple that come to mind very quickly. One is Jason Tejada, who um, stayed in touch, has stayed in touch with CSF. He was one of our earliest scholarship recipients and it was actually – his contacts through CSF, where he's now he's now working at um, Morgan Stanley. He's got a great job there, and he's a great human being. Um, he's he says all the time that the scholarship was a turning point in the, their whole family's life. It was getting it was the difference between. Going to a school where they wouldn't have thrived, and going to a school where not only is he thriving, his sisters are one's going to be a doctor. They're all doing really, really well. Another story is Nicole Serato, who actually works in our office right now. Um, she was going into sixth grade, I believe, and she'd had a, some rough things happen when she was a, a younger child. Her mom had been murdered. Um, Her dad was trying to figure out how to raise these kids on his own, and he happened to see Ted on the Oprah Winfrey show talking about the scholarships, and Oprah sang out a number they could apply to, and they applied, and everything changed for her. And now she's actually going to film school, and she's going to graduate in May. She's really, really good at what she does. She's learning so much about what what school choice. It's becoming her personal story in a way it's resonating. Like, this is what happened to me and the difference it made in her, my life. And I want to start my own scholarship program wherever I end up living. Um, that's how much it's resonated with her.
0: Low-income families know there's a problem. They, they want do. it solved. And one proof of it was uh, in 2018 in the Florida governor's race, the Republican DeSantis mm-hmm. made a point he was going to preserve what they have in terms of school choice. And he won a disproportionate, even though he's a Republican, he won a disproportionate percentage of African-American mothers who liked the idea he was gonna do something for their kids. And that's what won him the election. I, I think that that's absolutely
1: true. I think he went from getting 9% of the vote to 18% of the vote, which was which was a deciding factor in that election. And that's one of the really hopeful things, is that parents seem to be so much more aware and knowledgeable about the fact and, and expecting that they should have choices, that they're not just ready to accept these bad choices. Now, having said that, there was just recently a poll done by American Federation for Children, which showed that over 80%. I think eighty-nine percent of the people who responded had kids in public school. Only forty-seven percent of them made that, that was their first choice. So they don't—they know that there there should be choices. They still don't have the choices. But at least it's on the knowledge factor. That's really important because until you get that grassroots knowledge, I don't think you're going to have fundamental change.
0: Tell us a little bit about a movie on that subject that came out a few months ago Miss called Miss, Miss Virginia. Yep. Uh, Did you have some input on that?
1: Well, I know Miss Virginia personally, Virginia Walden Ford. So she was in a situation where her son was in a low-performing public school, but not only was it low-performing, it also didn't have the kind of structure he needed to not get into situations where he would be tempted by bad behavior.
0: And uh, tell us about uh, her, her fight. This was in the early 2000s, one of the worst school systems in the country in our nation's capital.
1: Hmm. Um, she decided to, she knew her son was bright. She decided to do something about it. And she shows, and her efforts show what it is possible to do when one person takes on an issue and just doesn't let go of it. And she had she caught the attention of a lot of people. Um, she fought very hard and she managed to take the lead and lead a grassroots effort, which eventually got vouchers passed in the District of Columbia. And that was against a, a lot of really strong opposition. And one of the interesting things about that movie, all the words that came out of Virginia Walden Ford's mouth in the movie are actual words of Virginia Walden Ford. So if you've seen the movie and seen how dynamic and powerful her uh, speeches were, that that she really she really said those things. They didn't write them up after the fact. And that was coming from her heart. was coming from the fact that she's, she's an authentic person who believed and she fought for what she believed in. So that gives me a lot of hope.
0: What uh, comes through in that movie was how formidable the opposition was. The political establishment initially in Washington, D.C. was against her. And given the peculiar setup of uh, the district, you had to get through Congress as well, the House, the Senate, and the president to sign a bill.
1: Correct. Um, And... and It made it by—I'm not sure what the exact actual vote was at the end, but I know John Boehner was there at the time, and I know he was very instrumental. And I know he—it takes people who will say, this is my issue that I'm not going to back down on. I think there were later budgets where—budget battles where he said, this is the one thing you're not taking out with President Obama.
0: The Obama administration, even though the president and his cabinet members sent their kids to non-public schools— They initially fought to kill this program.
1: And that happens over and over again that the people who have school choice because they either live in a district that has good schools or they have the money to – they can move to a district that has good schools or they can afford to send their children to private schools. They will say that they, they don't believe in school choice for other people. So there's a lot of hypocrisy enough to go around on this issue, um, and I think that every every family, rich, poor, middle income, all of them should have parents are the first educators of their children. That was one of the things that Ted always drove home to me. And also, if you get the first, if you don't get the first things right, everything else falls apart. And the first thing that you need to get right about education is that parents are the first educators. And if you don't honor that and respect it and empower them. You're going to have the results we have now. Parents have been disempowered for so long; it's going to take a while to get back to a place where the people who are closest to the problem are actually given the power to help solve the problem.
0: Well, this gets—you uh, made mention uh, there have been uh, lights of progress around the country. Mm-hmm. Let's discuss a couple of them. Let's start with Arizona. What has Arizona been doing?
1: Arizona has ESAs. They have a tax... ESAs group. are... Oh, education savings accounts. But let's give... Let, so let's look at sort of a broad perspective here. Um, back in 1999 when CSF started, there were only about 350,000 kids who went to charter schools. Now there's over 3.2 million. There were only about 12,000 kids who had access to publicly funded choice. Now there's about over 500,000. It's still small numbers, but there are... 26 states that have some kind of choice programs, 18 tax credit programs, um, 12 voucher programs. I think 44 states have um, charter school programs. So there's, there's just been a, there's been a flourishing. If you take the total number of percentage of kids that are going to private school now and homeschooling, I think we're up to about 14 or 15 percent, which at some point, um, and, and, and the homeschoolers and people making these choices, they're not all like, People on the far right, they're, they're people, all different kinds of people are are waking up to the fact that we need to do something different. And that, when you combine it with the number of people that support school choice, even in the Democratic um, Party, the support for school choice is over 60 percent.
0: It's amazing. Uh, Florida seems to have made the most progress in terms of uh, kids who uh, have alternatives to the – uh, government school yep. system. Can you quickly just run through the things they've done well, the, starting with Jeb Bush yep. when he was governor?
1: Yeah, one of the interesting facts is that there was a program called the Children's Scholarship Fund Tampa that, that started around the time when CSF started and the John Curtley was ahead of it, and Jeb Bush contacted John Curtley and said, "I need your help. I want to, I want to, you know, expand what you're doing and make it a publicly funded program." Okay. And from that, it has grown. They got tax credit scholarships passed. Um, they have a corporate tax there, not an individual tax. So, s- strictly through the corporate tax credit, they now raise over six hundred million dollars, and one hundred and sixteen thousand children a year get
0: scholarships. Can they they can go to any they can go non, to any school non, they want to. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And the scholarships are large enough that you could even attract an entrepreneur to potentially come in and start a new school. And there was just a study done um, out of the National Bureau of Economic Research mm-hmm. um, that showed what the effects on public schools are of the increased private school scholarship program. And guess what? It's helping to raise the, the scores, decreasing… Ups- like
0: competition and accountability. I knew. Lo, Lo and like behold. That. It
1: works. Um, <laughs> Yeah, like Ted always said, monopolies never produce a good product at a good price.
0: He was right on that. Well, even as you pointed out in New York City, there's a little bit of choice there.
1: There is a little bit of choice there. There's been a very robust um, growth and expansion of charter schools. Despite the
0: mayor trying to kill it.
1: Right. And it, it is actually has reached the cap now. There won't be any new charters opening. I think that the, the ones that only, that have their charters, there's still some new ones that will technically open, but there's not going to be any new charters actually granted. And that, you know, New York has benefited from some of the most successful charter school operators, Eva Moskowitz, case in point with the Success
0: Academies. She is an activist who uh, did a charter school and uh, was once a uh, Considering a run for mayor, some of us wish she had done it. <laughs> she's probably doing
1: more good where she is now, though. Right. Um, I think there are probably over fifteen thousand kids in her schools now. It's amazing. And, yep, and they actually have results. They outperform even the highest performing public school districts. They outperform everybody, and she's got low income kids.
0: Now, the raps against uh, school choice, you 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 know them, so let's just bat them down. Start off, you're creaming off the best and leaving the schools with the rest.
1: Um, Well, it's not a a creaming process. Um, We are—granted, people are motivated to do something different in their lives, but I think that motivation is actually a good thing because one of the things that we see is when one person does the thing that makes their life better— It has a ripple effect. It has a ripple effect. In fact, that's a word one of our kids used, Hansel Lopez. He told one of our funders— it was like a ripple effect. All these good things started happening to me. And we often hear when we ask mothers or, or the adult in a child's life, how did you hear about us or what made, you, what made you come to us? The second thing behind the school is that they saw someone else doing this and they thought if they can do it for their child, I can do it for my child. And that's kind of what you saw in the Miss Virginia movie, too. People got on board.
0: Yes. Yes. It's
1: a powerful thing.
0: Now another thing which is utterly untrue, but they still throw it out, you're depriving public schools of money that they could use better.
1: Which is absolutely not true. In fact, in many cases, when the child comes out of the school, the school's still left with some part of the money that was attributed to that child. And they so they have part of the money and they don't even have to educate the child. So it's actually it should be a win win. And actually most of these school choice um, bills, the tax credit scholarship bills. They actually, or the bill in Washington, D.C., it gave mm-hmm. as much to public schools as it did to the private schools. They called it a um, the three-legged effect, and they w- were helping everybody. They weren't just you know helping the private schools. So it's just not even, it's just not true.
0: Right. So uh, walk us through uh, the proposal. Uh, the president reiterated it. Uh, it's called the Education Freedom Scholarships and Opportunity Act, and it doesn't set up a federal agency, but provides funding through contributions directly to organizations set up in a state that will provide scholarship money directly to parents and uh, children. Walk us through that.
1: Okay. So this would be a tax credit against your federal income taxes. It would be up to 10% of an individual's gross income and up to 5% of a business's business taxable income. The total size of the program would be capped at $5 billion. Um, it's unique in that it's up to the state still. It's still you know, pushing it down to the state to decide if you're going to participate in the program, number one. Number two, what would be a qualifying scholarship granting organization to administer these grants? Um, who should be qualified to receive a grant? and finally what expenses should be allowed to be covered by this grant so it's not it's local would be locally driven customizable at the local level to best suit whatever the state decided was needed it doesn't take any money away from anybody it's all privately funded And if you look at the surveys, I was telling you earlier how people support school choice at a rate of, let's say, 69 percent, I think it is. When you give them the specifics on this proposal, it jumps up to 70 some percent. And among African-Americans and Latinos, it jumps over 80 percent. And the reasons for that, people say, are because it's an it it's a chance to improve education. So people are associating school choice with improving education and, an, and a chance for fairness and equality. It doesn't cost the states anything. So I think it could be a really important and significant way to get access to, for school choice to more people. And I know as a guy who supports the flat tax, you're probably not. Um, but I think you also support income tax credits, right? So under mm-hmm. the current system, this is a way yes. to open up more choice and opportunity to people that are denied it right now.
0: So uh, those who want to help your organization, they can go on scholarshipfund.org, and uh, money goes directly to the kids.
1: The money goes directly to the kids, giving and it's low-income kids. um, So it's giving kids who otherwise don't have equal opportunity. It's those 40-some percent who would rather be at a different school, giving them the chance to to go to a different school. And I bet you the number is even higher if you go among low-income families. A lot of them would rather be at a different school. But paying tuition is, you know, a real hardship for well, full tuition. you saw tuition.
0: that uh, in the movie, uh, Miss Virginia, when mm-hmm. she tried to raise money initially for the tuition to get her kid out of this terrible school. She tried and tried, couldn't do it, and realized uh, something had to be done.
1: That's right. And, you know, I think a lot of our parents, but it's amazing what parents will give up to put their kid in a better educational environment. That same survey I was talking about, people would be willing to get another job. They'd be willing to give up going out. They'd be willing, they say all these things, they'd be willing to give up because people are so, there's still a lot of people, especially among the immigrant families, they've come to America for a better way of life for their kids. And they're, They're kind of shocked and appalled by what's going on in our public school systems, and they'll do just about anything to make sure that their kids have a better chance.
0: Darla Rumfo, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. I really appreciate it. Good luck in your work. Thank you so much. And may may others imitate you. Thank you. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Darla Rumfo, President and COO of the Children's Scholarship Fund. Good quality education is of the utmost importance for everyone to exceed in life, and CSF is striving to make it accessible to as many children as possible. And now, to continue your education, dear listeners, on to my Reads of the Week. The first article is by Holman Jenkins of The Wall Street Journal. You can find it on wsj.com. The title is, Let Putin and MBS Both Lose. MBS refers to Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia. You all know about the war between Russia and Saudi Arabia over oil prices, which is wreaking havoc on the U.S. energy field and also energy producers around the world. But both parties, Jenkins believe, are making huge mistakes. Neither one is portraying any genius in this situation. With Russia, for example, Russia can't survive for very long with the budget it has, with oil below $50 a barrel. Already, its largest oil company, Rosneft, is on the U.S. lifts of sanctions. Right now, there's no mood in Washington to lift those oncoming sanctions. And Saudi Arabia, they need the money even more than Russia does from higher oil prices. However, there's political turmoil in Saudi Arabia, Jenkins points out, evidenced by the fact that MBS purds several royal family members He's not in a position to cut oil production. Another one related to energy, another article, Oh Frack Yay! for U.S. Oil and Natural Gas. It's written by Jacob Pluckett. You can find it on realclearenergy.com. That's realclearenergy.com. But the point he's making is that, as he says, the environmental and economic effects of the shale and oil gas revolution have been decidedly positive giving a nice overview of what's actually happening in the energy field. Yes, right now, it looks like the energy industry is going to be in terrible, terrible trouble. But it's been that place before, and it will come back again. The technology is there. The know-how is there. The workers are there. We'll come back, and the effects will be good for us and the rest of the world. Finally, this goes into Can You Believe It category. The title is Congress Sadly Eyes a Tax on U.S. air travel. Congress is considering raising taxes on airline travelers to fund airport expansions and maintenance. Not good timing. The article can be found on realclearmarkets.com. It's written by Xian Chuang. Let me spell that for you, S-H-I-H-H-S-I-E-N. The surname is C-H-U-A-N-G. A good read. Tell Congress this is not the time to be imposing any kind of burden on air travelers and the air industry. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.